Now, all of us, you know, wherever we are in life, we will face crises, unfortunately. You know, financial hardships, marital stress, uh, medical emergencies, even the death of a loved one. I mean, that's, that's part of life. So when the bigger crises hit us, the question is, how will we respond? How will we respond? So, I mean, I'll own my own response here. Uh, I'm an open book. So my family knows that I just, I get stressed. I do. I just get stressed. I also, I'll get scared if it's a big enough crisis. Maybe I just, you know, deny it for a while that it didn't even happen. That's similar to, to the disciples in our passage this morning. They responded to the biggest crisis in their lives, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which we just celebrated two weeks ago, by these same, these same feelings of emotion. Now, maybe you weren't here two weeks ago on Easter, not, not, you know, not pointing any fingers, maybe you were sick like my son was. So let me give you just a speedy review of Easter. So we're all on the same page. So, Friday, Jesus dies a brutal, horrible death on a cross. Sunday, the two women come to anoint him with spices because uh, they didn't get a chance to do it before. And they discover two angels. They discover a gigantic stone. They discover the tomb, praise God, is empty. And the angels say, no, it's not just that Jesus is missing. He's, he's alive. He's not dead. He's alive again. Praise God. So back to these apostles who had experienced similar emotions to what I had experienced, who had spent three years with Jesus, who had heard Jesus predicting his death, his resurrection. Shouldn't, I don't know, just a question, shouldn't they have responded better than denial, than fear, than, any, than what they experienced? Because if you look at, for example, Luke chapter 24, verse 10, we're not going to turn there, but they do, they deny the women come, they race back from the tomb and they go right to the men who were closest to Jesus and they say, he's alive again. And the disciples say, no, he's not. They, they just deny it right to their face. And then in John chapter 20, verse 19, it says that the disciples, again, we won't turn there, but it says that the disciples went to the upper room to hide. They were afraid. Shouldn't these, of all people, these apostles, these that were closest to Jesus have responded so much better. Well, I'm going to answer how I typically answer my kids. Yes and no. Yes and no. No, because God made us with emotions. I think all of us are going to naturally, just because we're human, we're going to struggle through crisis. It, it, as we have emotions... It takes us a while to struggle through whatever major crisis is ahead of us. That's how God made us. And then, yes, because these apostles, they got to know Jesus well enough that they had to know. Even if they didn't hear a thing Jesus said, because of what they saw Jesus do, they had to know. Jesus had something else up his sleeve. So, let's see what, let's see what happens, all right, as we jump into our passage for this morning, because where we're at this morning is... That happened Sunday morning, and now we're in Sunday afternoon. So we're in Luke chapter 24, if you haven't opened your Bibles up already. And beginning in verse 13, I'm reading from the ESV, which is similar to the NASV. That very day, two of them, two of the, these, the disciples, 
not the apostles, but these are disciples that are separate from the apostles, were going to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. So we have the setting. So you have these two disciples, again, not part of the 11, who are on a walk on Resurrection Sunday afternoon from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now, I know, pop quiz, making sure we're all awake here. Now, I know Pastor Dan has permission to use a pointer. Do I have permission to use a pointer? Oh, good. Of course, I have the power, so I guess I could just use it anyway. All right, so here we, oh, there we are. And so there's Jerusalem. There's Emmaus. And if you're far enough from the screen, it's probably hard to see the distance. Um, But there's some terrain there, but it's seven miles. And just to give you a little bit of scale, because, I mean, you can look at a map and see two dots, but you really don't know what seven miles is. Okay, so let's say, hypothetically speaking, that you don't prefer Calvary's coffee. Drew, I, I do like, Pastor Drew, I do like Calvary's coffee, just so you know. Let's say you don't happen to prefer it, so you want to go to Starbucks. That's better coffee. But because the Starbucks that's by I-95 is really busy, you actually decide you're going to walk all the way to the Starbucks that's on the other side of town, the one that's like next to Fresh Market. That would be a seven-mile walk. Okay, just so you know how far those disciples walked. So, you know, that to that is seven miles. All right, gives you an idea of the scale. All right, so we're clear on the setting. Verse 14, and they were talking, arguing, debating. That's kind of the Greek nuance with each other about all these things that had happened. So, well, at least these two disciples, as opposed to the apostles, were talking and walking it out. Because I don't know about you, but I think best when I walk. When I go for a walk, I do. And especially because of all the drama that surrounded Jesus in Jerusalem at that point with this uproar of his death and all that happened and surrounded it, I think it was probably best for these disciples to get out of Dodge, right? And who knows why exactly they were headed to Emmaus? Maybe it was they had a relative or maybe they had a friend or who knows, but that's where they were headed. So here we go. These two disciples, they discuss, they're arguing and they're debating what happened. But they can't seem, at least our passage doesn't say that they did, they can't seem to come to a conclusion. Because, and don't miss this, because Jesus' death, which was an external tragedy, triggered an identity crisis in the hearts of these disciples. Jesus' death triggered an identity crisis within these two disciples. As we dig further, we'll see it. Next verse, verse 15. While these two disciples were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus shows up, and yet he hides from the disciples. Maybe you've seen this passage, read this passage before, but but why? It doesn't make sense, right? Because beyond the confusion about those events that day, because remember, these... For us, Easter's like, no duh, Jesus rose from the dead, he's God, it's, it's clear. But these disciples are right in the midst of these events. And so for them, it's not clear. It's all just confusing. But, but it's more than that for them. Because at the heart of their struggle is whether they're willing to give up on their Jewish identity to follow Jesus. Because you can't believe that Jesus is God 
and be a true Jewish believer. Because, and, and Pastor Daniel mentioned this up here on this stage many times. So to be a Christian, you have to believe that Jesus is God, right? Good, making sure we're, we're together. So those that don't believe Jesus is God are not a Christian. Right, exactly. So, but for these, this, these, two, these poor disciples, for them to, to make that move, that means that they can't be Jewish the way they fully understood themselves to be Jewish, right? I mean, that's, that's their identity. That's who they are. And that, yet they're going to have to forsake their identity to follow Jesus? Now, I'm not sure that we truly understand that because for us it's very easy. Well, of course Jesus is God. We know that. What if I was to say to you to help you understand this and to kind of put you in the shoes of these disciples? What if I was to tell you that Jesus was one of the greatest prophets of Muhammad? I'm not saying he is, okay? I saw these looks like, whoa, where's this? This sermon just got crazy. I'm not saying that he is at all. But if I was to say that and really mean it, it would have the same power as these disciples hearing that Jesus is God. It's that just, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. And it becomes a legitimate and true, genuine crisis in the lives of these two disciples. So Jesus then, through his anonymity, through hiding his identity, gives them a safe place. This is why Jesus is hiding. Gives them a safe place to to discuss these important matters, having at the same time, get this, he also at the same time has the greatest authority to speak to these matters, right? Because he's Jesus of all people to speak to who Jesus is. Jesus, right? So it's the best possible scenario for these two disciples to be in. So moving along, next two verses, right? 17 and 18. So Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, that's Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who just does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, Jesus did what things? So let's take a first a minute and identify these disciples because I've just called them Jewish disciples, but who really are they? Well, we at least know the name of one of them. That's Cleopas. We don't know the name of the other. And some people have identified Cleopas with some other people in the New Testament. Um, some people have actually, tradition says that Cleopas was actually Jesus' great step-uncle because it was Joseph's brother, but I mean, obviously Jesus is, you know, of a virgin birth. But in all my study, it, I, I didn't see any connection between Cleopas and any of these people. All we know for sure, to be clear, is this. Number one, that they aren't apostles, that they're just, they're just disciples that chose. Jesus didn't choose them. They chose at one point in these last three years of Jesus' ministry to follow Jesus. And number two, that they're still at this point, have up to this point been following Jesus. Those are the only two things that we know about these two people. Now, Back to our passage. With Jesus' first words, which are a question, he's asking these two disciples. He's attempting to lead these two disciples and us in the 21st century along what I call a breadcrumb trail. I'll explain that here a little bit. As the disciples are taking, because the disciples really, 
What's cool about this story is that they're not just taking a physical walk, a physical journey. Really, they're taking a spiritual journey. And so we'll see milestones along this journey. And I'll, I'll, call, the, I'll call them out and call them breadcrumbs. So I know for you OCD people out there, I haven't gotten to the handout yet. I'm getting there right now. All right? All right, hold on. Okay? So the first blank, by following, it's the first word there, by following is the first blank, Christ lead into his presence and share that with others. And of course, we'll get to what that means later, but that's basically the title of the message. So, so as we continue along the trail, the first breadcrumb is right here. And let me fill in the blank here on number one. Probe. Probed. Jesus probed the disciples' openness to share their heart. Jesus probed the disciples' openness to share their heart through asking open-ended questions, which is what we should be doing as well. We should, be, we should have open hearts to hear Jesus' Jesus's questions, which might result in a natural question that certainly I would have, and that's, all right, well, Jesus is alive, that's good, but he's in heaven, so how do I hear his questions? Like, am I, if I'm hearing voices, is that Jesus? No, no. See a counselor. But seriously, how do we hear Jesus' questions? I have two, two responses. Number one, review the questions that Jesus asked people in the Gospels. Review Jesus' questions Jesus asked in the Gospels. So I go to the most reliable survey I can. I do a two-second Google search. And I find that there are about 307 questions that Jesus asks in the Gospels. It's a lot of questions. But I also know that some of those are probably random and not relevant. So after a little bit longer of a serious Google search, I find that there are about 135 questions that Jesus asks that are relevant to us. And if you want those questions, write questions on your connection card, and we can get those to you in another week or, a week or so. Because as you process through Jesus' questions and they're not just relevant for those disciples or the people he talked to in the first century. They're just as relevant for us today. We will see you know, how open, open-hearted and open-minded we are to where Jesus is at. And number two, are you willing? Are you willing to be honest with someone that's closest to you? The disciples were. I mean, they, they kind of left their emotions on their sleeve. As Jesus just asks one open-ended, very general question, and immediately the disciples stop, and, you, and it's obvious because the passage says it's obvious that they're sad. Are we honest with, with at least one person that's closest to us? Especially as we're struggling through, and we're talking about struggling through a major crisis. It's important that we're honest with at least one person around us. For our best health, we must be emotionally honest. Because no one can really help you if you never share with anyone what's going on in your heart of hearts. All right, so moving on to a very meaty section. Hang in there as, we, as I read through this. Beginning in verse 19. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, before God and all the people, and how chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. 
Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him, Jesus, they did not see. And Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all all that the scriptures said concerning himself. So, after Jesus' questioning, the two disciples finally open up and reveal what's, what's going on in their hearts. And with the words that Jesus used, you may think that Jesus just performed a verbal smackdown, foolish, you know, slow of hearts. But if you really heard how I said it, that's how I believe Jesus said it as well, because he cared about them. It's the reason he stepped alongside of them. He was, he was heartbroken that these, these two disciples, let alone every other Jew, it seemed, missed it. Because the Jews believed this. They believed that their scripture taught that a politically and militarily successful Messiah would inaugurate a kick Roman butt, can I say that in church? Jewish kingdom. Instead of what Jesus actually did, which was very contrary to that. Because what did Jesus do? He served. He taught. He suffered. And he died. Just, you know, diametrically opposed to what the Jewish assumption was of this idea of the Messiah, which is the Jewish title. The Greek title would be Christ. So it seemed impossible to these disciples that Jesus is the Messiah because it did not fit their assumption for how God works. Because what's going on here is that the disciples are questioning God. Now, as we think about this, I mean, Think about this. Who, who knows God better? Does Jesus know God better or the disciples? Maybe this illustration will help us really get the point. So one of my favorite superheroes is, he's, he's got webs, he slings. You guys know who I'm talking about? That movie just came out last year. Of course, there's a lot of movies lately about superheroes, obviously. But I'm talking about Spider-Man, our favorite webbed hero. Um, I grew up loving Spider-Man. Maybe it was because I could relate to him. Because he was younger, because he wasn't, it wasn't like he was all built and, and buff like Superman. But, I mean, he was a high schooler, he was a little bit nerdy, he was a scientist, he was like a little bit geeky. I just, I could relate to him. So, so, the reason I bring up Spider-Man is, you know, he has an alter ego, or it's really, he's Peter Parker's alter ego. And if you don't know anything about Spider-Man or superheroes, you know, in, in, in real life, they're one thing, which is Peter Parker for Spider-Man. But then when they need to, to jump in and, and take care of the criminal or whatever needs to happen, they transform and they become Spider-Man. So as a fan of Spider-Man, if I went to Peter Parker and I told him, I, and I know Spider-Man better than you do. How do you think Peter Parker would respond? No way. I am Spider-Man. It's exactly what we're talking about here with Jesus. Because the disciples who, again, in this identity crisis they're struggling with, are confused about who God is. And they think 
They assume that they know who God is. And yet, obviously, Jesus knows better. So until Jesus blew these disciples' minds by contradicting their divine assumptions out of their Bible, Jesus has to correct And that's the next blank, moving into lovingly correct what they knew about God from the Bible. So Jesus has to correct what these disciples are thinking. Now, Jesus could have very easily had referenced his own words that he spoke when he was on earth for three years and say, well, come on, come on, this and this and this is what I said and this is what I said. But Jesus doesn't do that. Why? Because for these disciples... The only authority that they would be responsive to is what authority? I heard it. Exactly. Thank you. The scriptures. But of course, they didn't have the New Testament. That wasn't quite written yet. So what did they have? I heard it. The Old Testament. Exactly. Just making sure you guys are awake. The Old Testament. Because we can't draw closer to Jesus' presence. That's ultimately where we're going here on this spiritual journey, on this breadcrumb trail, from crisis to presence. Until we know Jesus, not just from the New Testament, but also from the Old Testament, right? Because I know if you're me, and I don't know if you're like this, but I think of sometimes if I had a time machine, where would I want to go? What would I want to see in history, especially in Bible history? And of course, you know, creation and resurrection and, I mean, all these amazing events. But for me, I would have loved to have been on that walk with Jesus when he's like having the greatest Bible study ever. I mean, can you imagine learning the Bible from Jesus himself? That would have been amazing. And yet, I get the opportunity, we all get the opportunity, with his Spirit, to have our own Bible study every day. Because if we're believers, the Spirit lives within us, right? And I'm not pointing a finger at you, I'm pointing a finger at me. Why don't I wake up in the morning or whenever I do my devotions? Because I have my U version, I have my check off, and typically three out of five days I'm checking off the box that I've read the Bible. But that's not the same as spending time with God, with Jesus, getting to know him. Because it's, it's very different to read, like, for example, my wife, if she re- writes me a note or if I'm spending time with her, it's very different to be in her presence talking with her versus just on a Saturday or a day off just getting an errand done that I know will help her and she wants done, but it's not getting time with her. There's a, there's a difference between the two. So back to our passage, verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Jesus pretends, it's kind of weird, because it's like, I mean, he's God, so he kind of knows what's going on here, but he pretends like he's going to keep going. But he has a motive. He's checking their hearts after he's just revealed all this truth about himself that he assumes as well that's going to blow their minds. Where are they at? How are they doing at this point in their spiritual journey? And although there is a Middle Eastern 
tradition of hospitality, this goes above and beyond. Because I don't know if you understand the Middle Eastern way of living, but for them, having a meal together, staying together, that's, that's like committing to a relationship with someone. And are they ready to do that? Because that means that they are then, by doing that, rejecting everything they've known, their Jewish friends, their Jewish life. That's asking a lot of them. So we are to our third breadcrumb on this trail to Jesus' presence. And that's number three. Jesus verified, that's the word there, verified their preference for him above anything else at that point. Jesus verified. Because again, if they invite him to stay, they're at risk to reject everything everything in their past. So if I'm a Christian, if I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm living as if Jesus is the most important person in my life. Right. That's the way it should be. Well, let me give you an example of what that really means. So when I asked my wife to marry me by saying yes to her, I said no to every other woman out there on the planet. Right? Yeah, that's what it should mean. So when we say yes to Jesus, we're saying no to every other potential God on the planet, right? Right. Next verse, verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. These two verses make it clear that Jesus has decided to commit to them. Number one, because his willingness to actually lead the meal at some strange person's house. Typically, it'd be the, whoever owned that house, they would lead the meal. And because it's Jesus' one opportunity to bless these two disciples, like he's expecting, they will bless them here in a bit. We'll talk about that. Now, as a side note, this isn't communion like we just received. This is something else. And what it could be is, um, if you, we won't turn there, but Luke 9, 16 it's a reference to Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fish. He takes the food, he blesses it, he breaks it, and gives it to the disciples at that point, which parallels exactly what Jesus, is, Jesus does in this passage. Maybe what this is doing, what Jesus is doing, is he, he's anticipating the multiplying of believers, which will happen due to the witness of these very, these very disciples. He's anticipating a spiritual harvest. And then also, Jesus is committing to them by revealing himself which I don't know that we really can easily capture that. So let me, let me just share a story. Um, so I worked hard on this message at that same Starbucks that's seven miles away. That's how I know it's seven miles away. Odometers, they're good. So I was furiously working on my message, sitting outside in one of the tables, when two guys sitting next to me yelled out, hey, Ricky, better luck next time. And I, I look up, it's Ricky Fowler and his girlfriend. Now, some of you are like, like that, should that mean something to me? I'm so confused. Okay, there was this rinky-dink golf tournament last week in Georgia. You may have heard of it. The Masters. Ricky Fowler, uh, he was so close. I felt so bad for him. He was this close to winning the Masters. And I'm that close to him. But the only reason I acknowledged him 
was because these two guys called him out. So that, and, and so there's a tinge of excitement there. Can you imagine? Because the disciples recognizing Jesus is like 15 billion thousand times more than you know, my connection with Ricky. Can you imagine being there? And you're talking about Jesus as if he's in the third person. It's, your eyes are opening wide as you realize who Jesus really is. He's not just a great prophet, which is what the disciples said, which is not bad, but it's not far enough. He's God. And so suddenly it's like, whoa, Jesus is God and he's right in front of me. Can you imagine that astonishment, that excitement that they would have had? It's crazy. So I think I skipped over in my notes one of my breadcrumbs here. So uh, number four, Jesus committed to these disciples by revealing himself. That's the blank. Jesus committed to them by revealing himself. So continuing to move on, verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So, Jesus is here, and then he's gone. I mean, talk about a disciple's whiplash. So they're, you know, on cloud nine because they recognize that Jesus is there. And then suddenly Jesus is gone because the disciples had a mission at that point. And if Jesus had just hung out with them, he would, Jesus would have been naturally distracting them from the mission. Kind of like I had a mission at Starbucks to get this message done and I might have been a little bit distracted if I was hanging out with Ricky. So, but these disciples had a mission to be a blessing to others. And they were very self-motivated. That's our last blank, number five. Last big number blank. Because we know it, this, was, this whole thing was real. That these disciples had moved from crisis to really connecting with Jesus' presence because they were self-motivated. That's the blank there. Self-motivated to be a blessing to others. Self-motivated. And that's the last breadcrumb on this spiritual journey. And the reason I use breadcrumbs, I was trying to find a connection, was just that Jesus, when he broke the bread, that's when he revealed himself. That's when he revealed his presence. So, as we apply this to our lives, as we try to take this home, being a blessing to others sounds rather meaningless, cliche. Okay, go and be a blessing to others. Okay, what does that mean? Like, what am I supposed to do? That, that makes sense, but I don't understand. That's, and I understand. So I found a pastor named Rick Ferguson, excuse me, Dave Ferguson from the Chicago area, who had come up with an acronym that I believe comes from our passage that can make this very practical for us. And that's, that's where these next five blanks are going to come in. So, number one, how we can be a blessing. B, B, E. In prayer. So it's not just the letter B. You understand where I'm going here? B-E. B in prayer. Because we don't know who to be a blessing to until we've heard from God where he's directing us. Because the disciples zipped out 
after Jesus vanished from, and, and they ran back. Like that seven mile journey that took those disciples when they came to Emmaus, what's, what felt like seven hours in this passage, but, but felt like it took them seven seconds to get back to Jerusalem as they were just on cloud nine about seeing Jesus. And they need to be a blessing to these apostles back in the upper room who are still scared to death. And so I'm not saying that that's what we need to do, that we need to race out and tackle the first person that we see to try to be a blessing to them. That's not what I'm saying. Because what we need to do is to be in prayer so we can be aware of who is around us and who God's leading us to, to be that blessing. Number two, listen. These two disciples, when they ran back, first heard where the apostles were. Because the apostles had been afraid, but they had suddenly gotten some news back from Peter. Remember Peter, at the beginning of chapter 24, which we didn't read, Peter had run after hearing this potential news that Jesus was alive. He had run to check the evidence and had come back to the apostles since these disciples had left. So these, these apostles had already gotten some hope. So these disciples were just kind of fitting in the rest of those pieces. We need to listen. It's hard work. But especially if we're being a blessing to people in crisis, they need to know that we're not there for us to spill everything out on them. We're, we're there for them, and it begins with listening. Number three, my favorite. I promise you, this is what it says. Eat. I didn't make this one up, but I like it. Food, it's important. And maybe it's a way to, to make time to be in the, in the life of someone who's going through a crisis. Everybody needs to eat. But maybe it's also a way to help someone who's in crisis because you, they, they need to eat too. And sometimes when you're in a major crisis, the last thing you can do is to get out of bed, let alone make a meal. Eat. Number three, story. Wait. No, four. You're right. Making sure you guys are paying attention. You guys are good. You guys passed. Four, story. So then you may ask, all right, I'm hanging out, meeting, I'm trying to be a blessing with someone who's in crisis. What do I say? Share, share your story. How did Jesus touch your heart? Just share. Again, after you've listened, share. Number five, serve. That's, that hopefully is obvious, but the reason it's last is because the other things are, are more important. But that doesn't mean that a person going through a major crisis doesn't need to be served. Mow the lawn, take care of kids. Those are practical, <clears throat> excuse me, small ways that we can be a blessing. So as we wrap up, um, you may have, <clears throat> excuse me, questions for me, and that may be, well, I'm not trained, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a counselor. How can I be a blessing? If you're a Jesus follower, if you believe in Jesus, and if you don't believe in Jesus, if you haven't begun a relationship with Jesus Christ, please see a prayer partner down front after service or a pastor in the breezeway. But if you're a Jesus follower, just being there means that you're bringing Jesus' presence to someone who's in crisis. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times people going through a major crisis don't need major professional help, because they do. It's obvious. But that doesn't mean that they don't need other people to step into their lives and just be Jesus to them. Listen, share, serve. Let me wrap up real quick with a, a testimony of one person who's not a pastor, who's not a counselor, but who's a part of our church. 
who has in her own life transformed from being busy and crazy to being able to sit with people. This, and these are her words. Those of you who know me know I would describe myself as anything but a gentle and quiet spirit. I'll tell you that when I first became a Christian, I was sure that my personality was just too big for anything that could be described as quiet. My life 10 years later is quite different. I can tell you countless stories of how God used my bold, outgoing personality to shape me for what gentle and quiet really means. I've realized that gentle and quiet doesn't mean you can't speak or must speak softly. It really means allowing the Holy Spirit to quiet my heart so he can work through me. I recently stood by a friend in severe crisis. I can't share the story, but a mom... This was a mom who recently experienced the sudden and tragic death of a family member and prayed for God to quiet my heart and my desires to do, to fix, to work, so I could sit and listen closely for what my friend's true needs were. In those moments, the only thing I needed to do was to hold my friend's hand, let her cry, and share the peace that Jesus had brought into my life to assure her that he is near to her, will carry her and her burden through this very dark time. So one more question for you. Who can you bring comfort to by being Jesus to them. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we pray for your help because, Lord, we can only be a blessing as you reside in us and you speak through us. Lord, be with every one of these people, especially those that are going through a crisis right now, that you would provide peace, comfort, and rest. And then be with the rest of us that we could be a comfort and a peace to them. Lord, we give you this day, this afternoon, and this week. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ, amen.